Hear God's call into worship reading from Psalm 107. We'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. For the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hands of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So, those beloved in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading from Jeremiah 6, 16 through 20. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Also I set my watchman over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. Therefore hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what, I, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba, and sweet came from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. And now for our sermon text, Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 7, so we'll be focusing on just the very beginning. Uh, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, we come uh, trembling slightly for our own approach to these scriptures. May we see in them not our own ideas, uh, but your eternal truth, your word, uh, spoken in ages past, preserved by your providence, and here today coming to perhaps confront us in error or to illumine us in ignorance, whatever it be, Lord, may your word be spoken, not the mere ideas of men, and may these seeds of grace fall on fertile soil that you would nourish unto salvation and greater sanctification and ultimately glorification with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did everybody receive one of these two-sided sermon outlines or sermon notes? Great. Well, as I said at the beginning, it is a privilege to be back with you. And when I was with you previously, I preached uh, the third segment and what I've begun in my occasional, I don't preach every week back home in Omaha, occasionally when other pastors are on vacation or somebody's ill. So I preached a couple sermons through this Roman series. And last time uh, being with you, I preached the third. Just felt that that would be an especially edifying um, topic. Uh, but then your elders asked me to come back for this June date, and again in July, and I was thinking I might as well back up uh, to the beginning uh, and fill in the gap there with the first uh, part of Romans 1, Paul, as well as the servant part, 
part two to give you that context. And Lord willing, if there's an opportunity in August or whatever, no commitments, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us with that. But at least to give you the context leading up to uh, Paul saying that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So today, <clears throat> uh, looking at Paul and really the whole book of Romans very briefly here by way of introduction. Uh, in my uh, ministry as a preacher, uh, I've been ordained for a little over 10 years and uh, done ministry in a couple different places with some church plants and with a settled congregation in Omaha. I preached all the way through Matthew, verse by verse, expository method, as well as Genesis, all the way through, and then some Psalms and, and other places here and there. Preaching through Romans is a daunting uh, and humbling task. Uh, it goes without saying that it is a grand epistle. For good reason, it's put right after the Gospels and Acts uh, before the other epistles. Hundreds, probably thousands, I don't want to exaggerate, but hundreds of books have been written on it by the ablest theologians, pastors, and teachers. Uh, my intention in this series, however much we get to share together, is obviously not to be exhaustive of every detail, though I do want to, as you can see by me going word by word, at least in this first verse, not skip over things. It's really easy for a pastor to take too large of a chunk and you just focus on the parts that are easy or accessible, uh, but I wanted to, and have been very purposeful, and it takes some restraint to just focus on some of the details and not skip over those. So that's why it's just one word today, and last time it was two words, the name of Jesus Christ. And in um, July when I'm back, we'll focus on the word bondservant. Uh, and broadly speaking, I seek to follow uh, what John Calvin is quoted as saying, the task of an expounder. So the task of a teacher who is bringing to God's people to explain to them this eternal word from God is what he called lucid brevity. Lucid, which is to say clear, right? We want to open this up so we can understand it. And then brevity, speaking to briefness, concise, not excessively lengthy. Also, uh, my desire here is not to come up with some novel interpretations. Uh, that is why at least part of that uh, Jeremiah quote I read rings true. These are the old paths, right? Nothing new here. Uh, the vast majority of the whole book of Romans is very much settled, at least within uh, orthodoxy. Uh, there's all sorts of fringe groups who go weird directions and excuse who wrote it and excuse comments about rural women in the church and such. That's not me. I don't believe it's you. So vast majority of Romans is settled orthodoxy, which isn't to say there aren't some parts that are difficult, that are, I don't want to say necessarily controversial, but worth digging into and trying to figure out and, uh, and showing grace and deference to those of different opinions. And, and there would be the topic of, say, the gathering of Israel in Romans 11 and who is the man that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 7 and some other things. So there are hills to die on which is to say, settled orthodoxy, the importance of justification by faith. And there's hills to you know, explore and to send up search parties to see what's at the top of that hill and to be gracious in uh, seeing what others might say. But again, we are looking for the old paths here, the eternal truths settled in Scripture. Paul said, and it's uh, in reference specifically to those in Berea, but it holds true for all of us, are we fair-minded? Are we testing what any man says? by the foundational truths earlier in Scripture. Paul was not a novel teacher. I don't want to be a novel teacher. Whoever the Lord brings you to fill your pulpit long term should not be a novel teacher, right? And so that is my goal here, to walk in the old paths. And then the sermon outlines. As you've seen, I didn't have one last time, uh, not knowing your tradition here. But uh, I know there are different learning styles. Uh, there's different note-taking styles. Uh, if this isn't your style, set it aside. Give it to your neighbor, to your child. That's fine. Uh, but my... 
goal here, uh, sort of didactically, is to let you have almost all the, the key notes, the phrases, the scripture references, so you don't have to be uh, furiously copying it down. So you can focus on lifting, listening. Or, if you're one of those pen-active copy note people, fill in the blanks with other things as well. However, that works for you. Very open to your feedback as well as to what is helpful. So, with that stated, uh, I want to come to just the book of Romans briefly in a whole. On the back of your sermon sheet are a couple sample outlines. There is some controversy, or not controversy, again, discussion as to how to overall organize the book of Romans. Uh, many writers see a threefold division, others see a twofold. I'm not going to be dogmatic on either. I probably broadly fold, fall into the category of the twofold division, uh, but I believe there's merit uh, either way. Uh, the key thing, if you look at this outline, and I do want to say, while we're drilling into the details, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees, right? We're going to be looking at the tree, the detail of who Paul is, just like last time we looked in detail as to who Jesus Christ is. But we don't want to lose uh, the broader perspective. So these overall outlines can be helpful for you to see, well, where are we in this whole thing? Um, and the key structure is that in the first portion of the epistle, uh, chapters uh, either 1 through 11 or, or 1 through uh, 9, is Paul explaining the gospel. Uh, the second portion, and whether that's a, a second distinct section or whether it's a subset of the first, uh, is him giving implications for it with regard to the Gentiles and Israel. And then the last portion is the more concrete examples. How is it that we, or in different areas of life, whether it be the civil magistrate in chapter 13 or the church and different things, how is it that we live in light of the gospel? So that would be the... the second distinct section or the third section, depending on how we count. The common to all three of these these outlines, and this is essential for navigating the whole book, not losing the forest for the trees, is to know the heart of the gospel. And uh, I believe every uh, Orthodox expositor would see the key part of this book <clears throat> being verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open there, I'll read. And I just so you know, I'm reading from the New King James. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the heart of Paul's um, goal in writing this letter, of the Holy Spirit in preserving this letter and transmitting it to us, is for us to know the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of that fact. You know, if we need to write it on a card and pin it to our shirt every time we're reading Romans so we don't lose track of the important things, uh, go ahead and do that. But certainly, as I'm preaching here, I'm always trying to remember, what does this come back to? It comes back to the gospel, doctrine of justification by faith, which is the vindication of God's righteousness. So, we're to sort of map this from the most general to the most specific, uh, as I'm explaining here, the gospel of God, his righteousness, and then now we're uh, in verses 1 through uh, 15, coming to the preface, as he launches into that topic in later chapters. Within 1 through 15, that preface, there is the greeting, that's verses 1 through 7. And today I want to focus on Paul, the author's self-identification within that greeting. So again, we've got authoritarian self-identification within the greeting, greeting within the preface, preface, preface uh, leading up to the whole important topic of the gospel. So with that as all background on the series, 
on this book, and uh, with this as a study resource, perhaps uh, going forward, I want to come to Paul. Some lucid brevity regarding the Apostle Paul. First, uh, note the context. I've already touched on this. Is Paul. Uh, it is the only time that he identifies himself by name in this letter. So he's saying who is writing, extending these greetings, leading to the preface, leading to the doctrinal and uh, uh, practical applications. Uh, there's dozens of instances of I within the epistle to the Romans. So later, if you're not paying attention to the, the forest for the trees, you're like, who's the I? Who's speaking here? Well, because we in orthodox circles know so clearly, and there's absolutely no debate as to who wrote this, the I, all those other I's come back to Paul. But it is intriguing that it's only at the very beginning that he identifies himself by name. And I do clarify that it's within orthodoxy, there's no question. This is a settled discussion as to who wrote this. Because outside of orthodoxy, sadly, there is discussion. Uh, there is um, throwing darts, really. They're, they don't know uh, who it was. Uh, skeptics say that Paul didn't write it because it contains teachings they don't agree with. They don't like some of the teachings, so to try and keep Paul, they say somebody else wrote it and put his name on it. Other critics say that Paul couldn't have written these ideas because they arose later, that this was some emendation. You know, these types of ideas weren't settled in maybe the first century when Paul lived, and they came upon later, and somebody, again, taking Paul's name to lend some authority to it. They are wrong. That is not the truth. The God-breathed, that is to say inspired, words written and preserved here clearly say Paul. Let God be true and every man a liar, right? God has spoken. We know this is preserved. It is his word and it says Paul. Uh, the Spirit worked through him to say just what God wanted him to say. God preserved this word throughout the generations to benefit not just that first uh, era of the Romans, Christians in Rome, but us as well, everybody in between them and us, and generations going forward. So while we absolutely affirm that Paul wrote this, we also absolutely affirm that God wrote it, that God spoke this. God used human personality, and as we'll see, some aspects of his background, his personal history, his experiences, to convey this divine message. The Bible could have dropped out of heaven, right? It could have been discovered under a rock. And there's all sorts of cults who have that kind of idea of inspiration, of how their supposed holy scriptures, uh, really man-made inventions, uh, came to arrive. Um, but that is not what we claim in terms of inspiration. As one catechism question puts it, who wrote the Bible? Answer, holy men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Reporting from first, uh, 2 Peter 1.21, prophecy never came by the will of man. Prophecy, scripture, came by the pen of man, as it were. A real man, Paul, sitting down with papyrus, wrote it, right? But it was not by his will. God sovereignly moved the will of Paul to write and express exactly what God wanted him to say. So scripture is the revelation of God's will. It is God speaking. And it is also, at the exact same time, without any conflict, without any robotic activity on the part of man, it is man writing. And this is the essential and proper doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. 
So with that said, as to how this is authoritative scripture at the same time that Paul claims to have written it, I want to pull together some biographical information from other places in the Bible to help us understand a bit about who it is that the Lord made his bondservant, right? Who is this man that we have, you know, 13 letters, the largest chunk of New Testament writings come from this man? Who is this, and what can we learn from him? Paul is, without a doubt, one of the most preeminent Christians of all time. Nobody's ever going to come along like him, because the canon's closed. We're not going to have another 14 books of scripture added. Nobody can surpass him. And we're not expected to. And that'll come out in some applications later. But the key point uh, that I want you to focus on throughout this sermon this morning is that uh, contrary to how the flesh, which is to say us inside, contrary to how the world or how the evil one would try to convince us, Paul was not a self-made man. He was a God-remade man. And we must be too. Right? I don't want you to see Paul as this great individual and think, oh, if only I could study that hard. If only I could travel that many places. I could do those things too. No. By God's grace, the Spirit working in him, he was not a self-made man. He was a God-remade man. And so must we be. <clears throat> and uh, to look into that uh, story, as you can see in the outlines, I've broken down in three sections. His life before his conversion, how he was converted, and then his life after conversion. So looking at that first part, Paul before his conversion. Uh, there are two sources of information, uh, both in the Bible. Uh, the narrator in Acts, as well as Paul himself, his, his self-testimony. And I will uh, begin here, his life before conversion, with his self-testimony. And feel free to listen, please, if you'd like to follow with me and turn to the pages you may. Acts 22 is our first stop. Let me read Acts 22, verses 1 through 5. And this is him trying to address the the mob that was uh, trying to do him harm. He says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness in all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished." Note the key words here. The adjectives he's using to describe himself. He was a Jew by birth. He was raised in Jerusalem. He was a strict adherent. He was zealous. He persecuted the church. He's describing himself. So Paul was not a profligate rebel. Uh, He was not a fringe hanger-on to the Jewish community. He was not, indeed, far, far from ignorant of God's word. In many ways, he was a model adherent. He was an exemplary student. He was on the inside. He was doing the best that could be expected of him. And he uses that to try and commend himself to the crowd to gain a hearing. Then in uh, the next chapter, 23, verse 6, so at this point we have the uh, Roman um, uh, soldiers 
have stepped in to try and rescue him from the mob, to try and figure out what's going on here. Why are they so angry? And this is Paul speaking in that audience, his multi-part explanation of the reason for the controversy. I'm reading now chapter 23, 1 through 6. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, this is the Jewish council with the Roman governor there, or the Roman uh, military officer. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do not command me to be struck. And you do command me to be struck contrary to the law. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I do not know, brethren, that he is the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, importantly, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So the key things there, we learn that he, uh, really affirming the testimony uh, before, but that he believed he had maintained a good conscience, and that he was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. So that's a phrase speaking to the thoroughness, the dedication, what he was trying to affirm to them, the exemplary uh, engagement he had with thorough, sort of purist uh, Jewish doctrine. And then chapter 26, another instance that Luke records for us. We'll just read 4 through 11 here. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made to God by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So the key points here. He lived according to the strictest sect of the Pharisees. This is consistent with what we read earlier. He thought he was adhering to the promise of the twelve tribes. That's verse 7. He did many things against the Jews and his people. And in Jerusalem, and as he says everywhere else, he put Christians in prison, voted to condemn them, verse 10, and compelled them to blaspheme, verse 11. I will note that uh, some writers see in these statements an effort by Paul to kind of explain away, to push off responsibility uh, for what he had done. Uh, I don't believe that's true. I think he's actually very much owning it, and as I'll comment later, uh, sees some sort of grief for the harm he had caused. Others see him as just merely trying to strategically you know, drop some buzzwords and play political parties against themselves and be really kind of clever in order to gain sympathy and, and uh, turn the tide of these hearings. And while I do believe that he is being wise, 
that he is answers some fools according to their folly and he's not answering other fools according to their folly, I don't believe he's being manipulative and trying to just curry favor. Uh, too honest of a man, uh, too much, right? Acting by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to go down that road. He is, though, quite blunt that he had been thinking he was honoring God, but later realized that he was dishonoring the Lord and, in fact, fighting against the Lord and his people. Uh, Notice all the eyes here and elsewhere. He's not saying, you guys or my parents or the organization. He's saying, I did this. I did this. I did this. He realizes that he injured the saints. He forced them to sin, specifically the sin of blasphemy. He personally acted out of rage, uh, would be the uh, implication there uh, in verse 11. His use of the first person pronoun shows to me, I think is clear, that he owns his actions and he bears great responsibility for what he had done. And then, uh, reading Acts briefly, going to Galatians. In chapter 1. These are all quotes of Paul. So this is part of the self-testimony here in his own signed epistle, just like Romans. This letter to the Galatians begins with Paul. It's him writing this. So in uh, verse, sorry, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me read. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So, just to point out the consistency. Uh, Though the setting here is very different, those other historical cases we read are him uh, speaking to rulers, sort of a trial situation, whether they be the civil officers of Rome or the leaders of the Jewish church. This is quite different because he's proverbially sitting at his desk, right? In a peaceable situation, he's writing a letter. Though he's not necessarily peaceable in his spirit, he's very stirred up to want to come against the Judaizing tendencies. So both are, I'd say, uh, stressful situations, but a very different uh, epistolary context as opposed to the narrative context previously. Uh, There, rather than being subjected to others' authority, here he is exercising his own authority as an apostle. But it is a critical point to make, the consistency of what he reports. He didn't change his story for one context. He is consistent throughout all contexts. And to summarize thus far, every part of this, not a pretty picture. He's honest about his history. He's forthcoming about what he did wrong. While he pursued Judaism, he realized he had been fighting against God. Very true for so many religionists. I've met former Mormons who will say, oh, when I was a Mormon, I thought I was doing the right thing according to the strictness of my sect, right? I was being diligent. Or formal JWs. Talk to a, a liberal professor. They think according to their ideology at the university they're doing everything right. But only once God changes our mind then we realize the error. And with the illumination of God bringing us to his word, we recognize the difference. So with that as Paul's self-testimony, let us come uh, to the Bible narrator. So how Luke fills in some other details. Coming back to Acts. And in chapter 7. 
Very end of chapter 7, verse 58. Back up to 57. Then they, that's the crowd, cried out with a loud voice. This is them stoning Stephen. They stopped their ears and ran at him, Stephen, with one accord. And as they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this Saul, of course, we learn later, is Paul. Uh, this fits with his testimony that he had been pursuing Christians and consenting to them. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1, right after this, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So see how these pieces of the puzzle fit together. One comment here, though, on chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Some people will see that this is a separate incident. They would take the chapter break, maybe as insightful, distinct from the previous issue of him holding the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. So I differ. I would say it's not that he guarded the clothes and also... Uh, agreed with the death sentence, but that his guarding the clothes of the stoners was part of his agreeing with the death sentence. Evidence for that, as I put in your outlines, is there in the Greek word, translated as consenting. It conveys the meaning of a collaborative arrangement, a collaborative effort that you yourself are agreeing to. So you might not be the actual one throwing a stone, but you agree with it. If you needed to be with them, you would. If you had opportunity, you'd pick up a stone. So you may not be doing that exact act, but you are collaboratively consenting to it. Uh, to consent this way is not to uh, stand offishly, intellectually only, agree with what they're saying and doing. It is rather to be in league with them. Uh, the text doesn't explicitly say, again, that uh, Saul threw a stone. The sense is that he didn't. The stone throwers are over there, and he's doing his part over here. But by that Greek word there, we learn that he was in agreement with them. And essentially, he acted in concert with them. And of course, this concurs with his testimony we read earlier. Paul admitted that he had condemned Christians, that he punished them, that he persecuted them. And this is exactly what happened to Stephen. He was condemned, he was punished, he was persecuted. And Saul actively agreed with these events. In chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So again, this corroborates with what Paul had said, that he had gone to the high priest, that he'd received orders, that he went to bring them back to Jerusalem, etc. All these facts add up. This agrees with Paul's explanation. Um, and notice also the uh, word there, murder. Just to emphasize the severity, really. Let's not minimize uh, what Paul Saul did. Some people, when thinking about David, oh, he's a man after God's own heart. Yes, he did bad things, but could it really be that bad? But we don't need to gloss over the sin of God's people. If we gloss over the sin, it diminishes the magnificence of God's grace, right? So let's be honest here with the heinousness of Paul's sin. A specific word for murder. This is the same word used in texts like Matthew 15:19. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, and adulteries. Or Luke 23:25. He released to them one whom they requested, who for rebellion and murder 
had been thrown into prison. Uh, same Greek word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Scripture holds no punches. Paul committed sin, the sin of murder, no less. And we might look at this and think, this is a bleak picture. This is a man thinking he's doing the right thing. He was taking it so far, he's almost insane in his rage against God's people. But, again to say, this is the background that makes Paul, Saul, a trophy of God's grace. Those who are sick have no need of a physician. Right? Those who aren't sinners don't think they need a savior. Paul didn't know in his youth, in young adulthood, that he was sick. But he was very, very sick of heart. Sick indeed unto death. But thanks be to God that God did not leave him in that sick state. And that's what brings us to our next point, the next stage in Paul's life, Paul's conversion. And again, we have Paul's self-testimony as well as the Bible narrator's testimony. So let's look first, by way of canonical progression, at the historical record from the narrator of Acts. Uh, still being there in Acts 9, reading 3 through 8. As he, Paul, Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So certainly this is a dramatic conversion story, one of a kind, unique specimen within the whole canon of the Bible. It's certainly not meant to be a standard by which all conversions are measured, as if these stunning details of the booming voice and the blinding light falling to the ground uh, must be in place for a conversion to be genuine. Definitely not. But it does inform us of how normal it is that one who had previously not recognized, didn't love, was not serving Jesus, all of a sudden has a completely different perspective and a different relationship with Jesus. This passage is also very Calvinistic, which is very biblical, but to highlight those Calvinistic details, clearly Jesus came after Paul. Paul was not searching for Jesus. Jesus made him willing. Paul did not decide, oh, I've changed my will, and now I'm going to reach out for God. No. Jesus did that. In an important third stage, Jesus sent friends to minister to him. Right? Let us be reminded that our Calvinistic God's sovereignty and salvation principles are very sound and exemplified even here in this life of Paul. And then a little bit later in the chapter, verses 17 through 19, and Ananias, remember, that's the friend sent to minister to Paul, uh, ultimately laid his hands on Paul, his vision returned. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So we see, by way of comfort, Christians are not left alone. God sends brothers and sisters in the Lord to help us. Uh, Even the broader church is mentioned there. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need to be with God's people. But by way of application before we move on, I just want to emphasize the point again that Paul's conversion is not the gold standard. Uh, The essential details here do need to be repeated in any true conversion, but not the other details. Not to question the factuality of the other details. I certainly absolutely believe that there was a blinding light. There was the voice that not all, and the bystanders didn't see all those details the same. Just because the witnesses didn't see it doesn't mean that Paul didn't experience it. But I don't want you, friends, to question your own conversion because it wasn't like this. Paul is a unique case. To emphasize the essential elements, God sought him out. God revealed himself to him. Paul recognized Jesus, called on the Lord, uh, committed himself to serve him, and banded with other believers. Those are essential elements of a truly converted person. And so, if those elements are not true of your uh, experience, of your current state, and if you're looking back you know, 10 years ago thinking, was I really converted then? Am I truly a Christian? Well, maybe last week it came true, or maybe tomorrow it needs to. And so, uh, if there's some confusion on this, speak with your parents, if you're a child, speak with your elders. I'd be privileged to speak with you. Uh, let us not think that uh, your church attendance or exposure to the scriptures saves. Paul had been in the synagogue for years. He had studied thoroughly, and he thought he was understanding God's word, but he had not yet come face to face with and submitted himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the essential points of conversion. I'm moving along though in this point of Paul's conversion to his self-testimony. And we'll come back to Acts 22. So can we convey some details that we just reviewed uh, from Acts 9. So actually, I'm not going to read that. But the key details are the light shone, he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, the Lord called to him, he responded. Right? Paul said that before. Luke repeats it. I'm sorry, the narrator said that before. Uh, Paul repeats it here. But for some other important details, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. We read 13 and 14. Now let me read 15 and 16. And uh, later in Romans verse 1, there is the uh, topics of calling and separation. And that is a, a point to emphasize here in Galatians 15. But right now, another sub point. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, etc. So here he's trying to lay down his credentials, right? This is not a man-made thing. God is the one who called me, separated me, taught me, etc. But that phrase there, to reveal his son in me. 
Uh, it can be translated as either son in me or to me. So revealed the son to me or revealed the son in me. And there's certainly debate on the better translation here. Uh, really, it's a both and, uh, not to equivocate, but both. Clearly, the son, Jesus, was revealed to him. Right? That's what we just read. Historical narrative shows that the son, Jesus, was revealed to him. He saw him. He understood him. And then there's the phrase revealed in him. That would be that Jesus is going to be revealed to others through the life, through the ministry of Paul. Very much connected because you can't reveal Jesus to people unless, <coughs> sorry, you can't have Jesus revealed in you so that others can see him if Jesus himself hasn't been revealed to you. So you see the connection there? Right? You can't give to somebody something you haven't received. If you haven't received of God's grace salvifically, you can't bless somebody uh, to help them on that same path. So it's essential that these two things go together. Paul could not teach others about Jesus if he himself did not know Jesus. And importantly, he had been drawn to him, he did love him, and he did desire to know Jesus better, and therefore those are the things that are the hallmarks of Paul's ministry going forward. Well, with those are the highlights and important factors of Paul's conversion, now we come to the third part. What did God do in Paul's life with this new man? Right, very much changed, radical perspective and life changed on that road to Damascus. Paul's life after conversion is important for us to learn from. The scope of his labors, as I already mentioned, is truly remarkable. The most prolific author in the New Testament, uh, the, the number of miles he traveled is dizzying. And let's look at those two aspects, as a writer and as a missionary. So as a missionary, he traveled hundreds hundreds of miles. And this was not on you know, I-80 between Omaha and Lincoln where the speed limit's 75 and I decided to go 60 because there was a bit of a hail headwind and I didn't want to kill my gas mileage and we were going to be here too early, right? It's easy with the interstate highway system. Uh, road trips we so take for granted. And if we wanted to go to a different continent today, how easy is it to drive to the airport? Might be a little more expensive than we'd like because of gas prices or whatever, but still we have the means and we have the ability within hours to be on a different continent. Extraordinary. That was not the life of Paul in his time. By land and by sea, by foot, by sail, he traveled hundreds of miles. Huge chunk of his life spent on these arduous journeys. And certainly not to read all the details to you, that would take too long, but broadly speaking, Acts 13 and 14 cover his first missionary journey. Uh, Acts 15 into 18, his second missionary journey, on which he visited some new places, uh, planted churches, he moved on. Often his custom was to circle back to places that he had visited previously, to check in on them, to encourage them, maybe bring some correction. And then in other epistles, so outside of the historical record in Acts, we see that he did travel with other men, not by himself. Uh, he often dropped them off while he headed on to a new place with the others. Uh, many of these letters, like uh, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, uh, Galatians, is him checking in with those churches later, or the uh, what we call the pastoral epistles, Timothy, first and second, as well as Titus, are him reaching out to specific men, understood to be the elders in those churches, uh, the friends that he had left or the friendships he cultivated while he was there in order to help them grow. He really poured out his heart. He poured out all his energy 
probably unto an early death. Most uh, Christian historians recognize that he was ill, probably from overexertion. Um, but that's God's problem. What are we saving it up for, right? Uh, let us pour it all out for the Lord. So he invested his heart. He invested his body and his mind. All that he had, he invested in the church, invested in the Lord Jesus and the men serving him. And then coming to him as a writer. 13, yes, I did refer to that earlier. Got stated here. 13 books of the Bible explicitly bear his name. Uh, there's also other canonical, non-canonical letters. If you read that in the outline, that might have confused you, maybe made you worried. I'm not saying that... Um, a letter to Laodicea is some lost epistle and you know, there's some scandal and the canonization of the books of the Bible. Certainly not. But there is inherent in the Bible some clues that there's a missing, so to speak, or unpreserved, uncanonical letter to the Christians in Corinth. There's also a letter that he apparently wrote to Laodicea. God did not make a mistake in a failure to preserve those. They served their use at that time. The Christians in Laodicea needed to hear whatever he had to say. But according to God's providence, we didn't need to. So we don't need to go digging for some uh, canonical epistle that's lost. It wasn't preserved. God didn't want it on the Bible. And that's okay. He did preserve what we need to hear. But by way of summary, um, the courageousness of his Christian life. In all these labors, he stands out as a man filled with courage and tenacity because he knew his mission. And that's a factor we'll get to when we discuss the calling there uh, later in Romans 1. He knew his calling. He knew his purpose. And no matter the hazard, the risk, the difficulty, he pressed on. You read the journals and missionary biographies, which our family has for years. Uh, great activity, whether it be on Lord's Day as a family. I love oral reading or the children just pulling out books off the shelf as they become readers to uh, see what it is that made men like William Carey or Hudson Taylor or John Payton uh, travel so far at such personal expense uh, in terms of their own lives and health. Why did they do things like that? Uh, I work, as I mentioned last time, with Samaritan Ministries and um, there was a fellow who came into the same role as I was on, then I trained for a, another position, and he was asked to train for that one that I was now in, and he messaged me, you know, Teams remote thing, asking, do you think I should do this job? I, I don't know that I have the skill for this, and I was talking to him a bit on, well, what do you, where do you think you're headed? And uh, I believe he lives in Indiana now, and he had come on with the navigators, he and his wife, they have four young children, and that he and his wife were discerning a call to work with the navigators in West Africa. I was like, whoa, people do that. Like, I'm thinking in my head, because I've gone and done difficult things, wow, that is a whole other level. And so I really wanted to encourage him, well, that's wonderful. You're not a career Samaritan Ministries people. certainly don't need to be. I'm probably not either. Um, but what might you learn here at Samaritan Ministries in the next two or six or ten months to equip you for what the Lord has for you in West Africa? So all that to say, there's young people today doing extraordinary things. Maybe one of you will be among them. Um, and this encouragement we can draw from Paul. The Lord who had conquered him, called him, uh, separated him, did the same. And whether it be the William Careys or the John Paytons, etc. God preserved Paul through many trials unto the end of his useful service. And he did the same for those missionaries and church leaders as well. But here's a caution. Uh, let us not fall into the error of idolizing Paul, a great man for sure but a mere man nonetheless. 
Uh, his role in the kingdom was unique, as I mentioned, never to be repeated. Uh, just like there was only one Moses uh, to witness the ten plagues and receive the ten commandments. There was only one David to kill Goliath and establish the earthly throne of God. There was only one Paul uh, to fulfill this specific calling, especially the specific uh, actions of writing scripture. The key thing then for this third point is that Paul's post-conversion life was a testimony of God's abundant grace. Right? He didn't get saved and be like, great, got my ticket to heaven. Let me go back to making tents. It's a nice peaceful life and I can kind of subtract myself from all the controversy of Phariseeism. No, he did not just bank on his uh, ticket to heaven in his back pocket. God called him to much more. Paul, uh, bearing uh, evidence of God's sovereign working in his life, was born again and lived like a new man. So let me conclude uh, with those three points covered uh, with a few applications. I hope these will be comforts and maybe challenges uh, to each of us. I know they were to me. Just so you know, I don't want to lay out something there for you, which isn't for me as well. The proverbial point a finger at somebody, there's three coming back. Uh, So these uh, types of things are are essential reminders for myself, and I offer them to you as well. So first, the doctrine of inspiration. I covered that at the beginning, right? The essential fact that God breathed scripture but it's also, with no diminishment of that first fact, man that writes these things. So the doctrine of inspiration shows us that God uses people in powerful ways. God prepared and used Paul to be his particular vessel for conveying this very important information, whether it be that information in Romans or in his other writings. None of us here are going to be writers of Scripture, but just as God used Paul's upbringing and his intellect Uh, his heart concerns uh, for his neighbors, for his uh, old community, etc. He used all those personal aspects of Paul in order to extend the kingdom in his day. So too can, will, and does the Lord use people like you and me with your unique background, with your unique characteristics, family history, interests, skills, and gifts. So be comforted as well as be challenged by that. Second, Uh, Paul's early life shows that people with active and uh, diligent and thoroughgoing religion aren't necessarily regenerate. Uh, They may not be saved yet. Sadly, they may never be. Uh, Some unbelievers live profanely. We think it's really easy to identify that person. Wow, look at the crazy things they're doing. They're obviously not walking with God. But others kind of skate along. Uh, They may live really legalistically or self-righteously. They may themselves be convinced that they're doing the right thing. Either way, whether the profligate or the legalist, either way, sorry, with a hand gesture, I should put those side by side, sorry. Whether the profligate or whether the uh, legalist, either way, that life is spiritually dead and no amount of human effort whether the human effort of profligacy or the human effort of legalism, no amount of human effort is going to change their eternal destiny, which is to say hell. So the clean-cut, top-notch student, the devoted religionist, he is in just as much need of conversion as anybody else. And I say it as a caution to anyone who may think of themselves as a bit better than his neighbor. And that was me, not growing up in a Christian home, uh, not being such a wanton sinner as my college classmates at the University in California. Uh, I, because of my pride, could easily point the finger at the other people doing their bad things. 
but I didn't realize uh, my own pride was a sin unto death and the other sins that I committed. So being smarter or more successful, etc., than others doesn't get you a place in God's kingdom. should also uh, be a caution to us as parents to not presume too much when a child stays out of uh, trouble or does his chores well. Uh, matters of the heart are what matters most. Certainly it's, it is evidence of a changed life when they make a profession, when they honor their parents, when they're responsible and diligent in all those Christian virtues. Let us not confuse fruit uh, for fact. Fruit has its proper place, right? And so, uh, don't want to critique anybody's salvation here, but just as a reminder uh, for us to be looking at the matters of the heart and then how those matters of the heart come out into life. So I say this to comfort uh, anyone who um, also may think of themselves as beyond hope. Um, and maybe there's some here who, you know, I know I love Jesus, and I know I'm saved, so I'm not fearing hell, but I've done so many things in my past. Can God really use me? Uh, is there a place for me to do something more than just kind of skate along and, and be nice to my neighbor? Uh, could God, well, he, he could forgive me, but... Uh, um, I'm never going to get to that kind of upper tier of the Christian life. To that type of mentality, I actually saw on your shelf back there, um, Gentle and Lowly by Pastor Ortland. I just started reading that. really encourage you to, to pick up that book. But to that mentality of I'm not good enough, or maybe I'm good enough to get saved because it's got mercy, of course, but I'm not good enough to do anything good now. No. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Right? God's mercy is unto salvation. It's unto sanctification. He values the lowly, and sometimes more than the, the high. And here, uh, quoting from 1 Corinthians 6, it's one of those uh, beautiful buts, right? He's just listed all these really heinous sins that the people he's talking to partook of, some pretty serious things uh, by even our standards today. And he says, such were some of you. So he's not saying, oh, that's some other category. He's saying, you were amongst those heinous sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So be comforted that God works with heinous sinners, like murderers. Paul. Another application. Uh, no two stories are going to be identical. Probably slightly bit of a dead horse. I think I've repeated this enough times. Right? Paul's conversion was unique, uh, but many aspects are not essential. I would, though, uh, getting past that point of accepting your own story, I would encourage you to look at it and see how did God operate his grace in my life? A neat conversation topic you know, to your friends in the workplace, uh, among siblings even, to say, oh, I remember when I was reading this book, or I remember mom and dad asking me this question that made me think, or I never remember when I didn't love the Lord. And that's a good answer, too. <laughs> that's my prayer for my children, is that from their earliest memories, they would know God as their God, Jesus as their Savior, that they would never know anything else. So whether converted young or old, you must be born again, yes, but sharing our conversion stories, our conversion memories, our understanding of the status of our hearts is a wonderful way to magnify God, to encourage one another, to draw closer to the Lord. So remember, all that we have in common, though there's so many variations, what we have in common is that He is the one who made the way to reconcile us to himself. The debt you couldn't pay, he paid in our place. The righteousness we could never obtain, he gave to us 
Not for our merit. Certainly not. In Jesus and Jesus only do we have comfort in life and death. That is the essential commonality amongst our conversion stories. And then one last point. And uh, as I studied these passages in preparation for this sermon, I sense a tinge of, of grief, of regret in Paul as he recounts uh, the severity of his sins against God's people. Uh, he had to come to terms with that. Right? He, he couldn't go back and, and get uh, Stephen out of the grave. He couldn't undo those sins. But he could move forward. You know, looking over your shoulder is unhealthy if it bogs you down in regret and and woe is me. Looking over your shoulder is useful to learn and then to look forward to the mission God has for you. It was Shakespeare who said past is prologue. And that's a true biblical concept in that God uses our past to prepare us for what he has in the future. If there's any things unreconciled? Is there something you haven't repented of? By all means, do it. God is willing to hear and to lift that weight from you. Take it to the throne of grace where you can obtain mercy. And uh, the lessons learned, whether that's in the family you grew up in and your child training, uh, friendships, different religious groups you've been with, previous congregations, this one, so many things to learn from, so many ways to partake of God's grace to grow to be more like Jesus. Ultimately, that's our desire for this time. So, brothers and sisters, may this uh, brief inquiry into the person and life of Paul bring uh, times of refreshing to our souls. Because as it's written in Matthew, here I'm quoting verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, indeed we do thank you for Paul, uh, a mere man that you used greatly for your purposes and uh, really each stage of his life uh, fulfilled your purposes. So I pray that uh, these scriptures and the historical passages we read today would be an encouragement to your people. If there's any conviction that needs to come, any growing in humility, or even any repentance and, and saving faith that needs to be expressed, Lord, may you, uh, by your Spirit, stir that up. I know the folks here desire for St. John's Church in Lincoln to be a true light. Uh, may the good works done by these folks um, Shine a light brightly into this neighborhood. May you grow this congregation numerically, but also intensively, that each and every individual here would grow in grace uh, this day, this week, this month, this year, that in five years looking back, we would hardly recognize ourselves because of the good work you continue to do in us. So please, Lord, pour out your spirit, draw your people to yourself. May you receive all the glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.